guess you could be turning to John chapter 4. That's the passage we're going to look at today. And for those of you in the car, my bad, I did not send David the PowerPoint last night. So, David, did you, were you able to send it out this morning? He is not able to send it out. So just imagine, okay? Just imagine, and I'll try to be as descriptive as I, I can. So, John chapter 4, we're continuing our look in, on Sunday morning with a look at how Jesus talked to people, how he interacted, conversations with Jesus, if you will. And so, you know, we can look to him, you know, he is our chief shepherd, we can look to him and see how he talked to people, how he interacted, how he evangelized to learn how we can follow his example, be imitators of him, and with respect to evangelism, we can then look to see how he did it, gain some lessons to help us know what are some best practices, what can we do to help us go and evangelize the world. And that's really what I want to focus on Today, as we look at the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well in John chapter 4, because, I mean, I'm probably summarizing where I shouldn't summarize, but I'm going to summarize anyway. This, to me, is one of the most powerful examples of how to evangelize. It is just a classic way of talking to people and getting them to talk to discover that they themselves have a need, a need for salvation. Because if they, unless they know they have a need, you can talk all day long, they're not going to get it. So how did Jesus get the woman at the well to realize she was in need of what Jesus had to offer? That's what we're going to look at today. So, I'm just going to hit my button. There we go. Uh, and, and we sort of labeled it, uh, as far as the woman at the well, talking, how does Jesus talk to the, those who are thirsty and in trouble? Did, did the Samaritan woman know she was thirsty, know she was in trouble? Again, no, she didn't. But Jesus got her to realize she was indeed thirsty and she was in trouble and she needed help. So. With that, I do want to go back, and I know Bill did this at every class, and, and I intend to do the same. There are some basic principles that I think we need to remember when we go and we look at how Jesus talked to people, especially in the realm of evangelism, that we've got to realize we cannot forget. So the first one is Jesus was always prepared to teach. And I put some passages up here to sort of connect to, to, to my thought. And for those of you who have never been in one of my classes before, you sort of have to follow the Carrie Lewis train of thought, okay? So I try to put passages up here to try to lead you to where I'm thinking, okay? So when you think about Matthew 28, 18 through 20, 
1 Peter 3, 15. What's the essence of that, those passages? And please feel free to shout out, and I'll repeat through the microphone for those in the, in the parking lot. We're, we're supposed to teach, aren't we? Go out into all the world, make disciples of all men, always being ready to give a defense of the hope that is within us. Isn't that basic commandment 101 for a Christian? So Jesus is always prepared to teach. If we follow his example, we need to do the same. Second, different approaches are necessary. Let's face it. There are no two people alike in this auditorium. There are no two people alike in the parking lot. We're all unique. We're all different. We all think differently. We come from different perspectives, different experiences. And what may work for me may not work for you with reference to getting somebody to see something that they had never seen before, okay? And so different people require different situations. And and I'm going to probably digress for a second, but I think it's an important point to make. I think of people in two, two classes. They're either logical thinkers or they're emotional thinkers. You sort of see my my drift, and they make decisions either based on logic or based on emotion, okay? So think about how God has outlined the scripture. I want you to go back to Isaiah 1, verse 18. What does Isaiah, what does God want his people who have strayed away from the truth to do? They want, he wants them to reason, right? You go back to Isaiah 1, verse 18. Reason. It's, it's all about reason. When you look at um, Acts 9, I'm going to go there so you can follow my train of thought. Acts 9, well, not Romans 9, but Acts 9. In Acts 9... What is Paul doing? Uh, Saul, or Paul, kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Messiah. Now, this word proving, identical or close in thought to the same word in Acts 17. So if you go to Acts 17, what is Paul doing? Acts 17, verse 2 And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scripture, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Paul uses reason. God uses reason. God is logical. The scripture is a logical document. But what do you do? when you're dealing with a person who is an emotional thinker, makes decisions emotional. You've got to take that logic and then flip it to make an emotional appeal. So regardless of whether you're a logical person, logical thinker, or an emotional thinker, God uses logic and you can still use logic to present the evidence that Jesus is the Christ. Okay, we'll see that. Uh, Not necessarily just in this uh, lesson, but in other lessons to come. The second 
And then connected to that point, our teaching must always, always be rooted in God's word. You think about what uh, Paul tells the Thessalonian brethren that they had accepted his teaching for what it was, not the teaching of man, but the teaching of God. It's the word of God. And so we must always be rooted in the word, irregardless. Is that the right phrase? No, regardless, regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in, regardless of what is going on around us, we must always go back to God's word because it does not change. Okay? So we've got to be careful. Okay, then fourth, our teaching and our conversations must be driven by love and compassion. Think about 1 Corinthians 13. I could be that clanging symbol. But if I don't have love in my teaching, what has it brought me? It really hasn't done anything. Okay, I digress, but I felt like I needed to say those things. So now, let's talk about the historical context before we even get into John 4. So, Samaritan woman, Samaria, what's going on? Well, I want you to think back in your Old Testament knowledge, so turn back. And what was going on in 2 Kings 17? Assyrian captivity. Israel has fallen. The Assyrians have come in and they have captured and they have taken away the people back to Assyria. The land is basically desolate. And what does Assyria do? The Assyrians go and immigrate people into this area to populate it. Okay, And so the Samaritans are basically the descendants of those people at that time. So did the Jews like them? No. You know, number one, probably reminded them of their captivity, you know, their, their brethren's captivity. Second, they came and occupied their land. There was a great animosity uh, between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so we need to keep that in mind. And so um, let me just go back to John 4 before I flip to the slide. So notice in verse 3 of chapter 4, John writes, He, speaking of Jesus, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So, okay, think about it. Judea is in the south, then we have Samaria, and then we have Galilee, north of Samaria. So the quickest, easiest way to get from point A to point B is what? Straight line. So he's going to go up that straight line, and he finds himself in Sychar, near Mount Gerizim. Most people believe that Sychar is, in fact, the, the city of Shechem. Uh, but I'll, I won't go into to that. Okay, so let's then go to John 4, and we'll quickly read verses 3 through 9, because I think there are some th- things that we need to think about. So, beginning in verse 3, He left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. 
Jesus, therefore, being weary from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to drink to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away unto the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And so, let's think about some of the the things that are going on in this section of John 4. Because basically what you have is a wearied Jesus asking for help from a Samaritan. Now, I'm just going to say this. To me, this is an amazing picture of the humanity of Christ. You think about it. As a man, he has traveled, I don't have my map up here anymore, but just to have the vision, imagine, that he is, he's been traveling, it's now the sixth hour, which there's some debate about whether it's Jewish time at noon or Roman time at six, but it doesn't matter. He's tired. He's been on the road. He's been walking a long time, and, you know, he just is weary. And so, You've got Jesus, he's alone because his disciples have gone, left him to go buy food. So he is alone, sitting next to the well, or near the well. He is resting. He is thirsty. It is a picture of the humanity of Christ. But then we see his deity later. Okay? So just remember that. Sort of file that away in in file 13. Okay? So, um... So here we see a picture of humanity of Jesus. He's asking for water from a Samaritan woman. So, you know, you you have to think about the, the times. Would your typical Jew who may be you know, at death's door for, you know, for thirst would the typical Jew have asked a Samaritan woman for water? From the context of the passage in verse 9, it would appear no, because it says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. There was that much animosity. So to me, as I see this, Jesus then epitomizes the attitude of the Christian From the standpoint that the Christian sees no barriers, sees no boundaries, sees no social, economic uh, uh, classes, sees no moral classes, sees no uh, ethnic classes. A Christian sees man, sees humanity. And what as what has all human done? What have all humans done? I guess that's the grammatically the best way to say it. We've all sinned. We're all in need of Jesus. We're all equal. And, and, and Jesus died for all, not for a few, not for a select. He died for all, and all have an opportunity to obey. 
Okay? It is us, as Christians, we have a responsibility then to evangelize without respect to people. So, I guess I'm going to ask the question then, and this is more a reflective question versus a question that I really want a response to, although I guess if you want to respond, you're free to. But if you were the Jew sitting there, what would you have done in that time frame? Would you have asked for a water? And then I want, to, I want you to expand that thought to what would you have done from an evangelistic perspective? Would you have made those distinctions? Here's where I'm going. We need to be careful, and I wrote down Luke 18, the first, uh, I guess that section with the Pharisee and the tax gatherer. Well, let's just go there, Luke 18. Luke 18, verse 11. There's the attitude of the Pharisee. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like these tax gatherers. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Would we have had that attitude? Put yourself in that situation. I guess the other thing that I would think of is, would we have tried to, you know, just move away, I hope I don't fall, from the individual or like uh, turn, you know, like, oh, not there, not, imagining you're not seeing the person. That caused me to think about 1 Corinthians 15:33. So 1 Corinthians 15, we all know that by heart, don't we? Do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. I don't want to take the chance that she may corrupt me, so I'm going to move away. Also wrote down 2 Corinthians 6, 17, where it talks about, you know, we need to separate ourselves, come out from among, uh, you know, the world. Come out from among their midst and be separate, says the Lord. 2 Corinthians 6, 17. Would we have had that attitude? Versus the attitude that is in 1 Corinthians 5, or the instruction, basically, in 1 Corinthians 5. uh, Specifically 9 and 10. I wrote you, this is Paul writing to the Corinthians, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have had to go out of the world. Then I want you to go over to your next column or next page to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 17. No, 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 excuse me, excuse me, wrong. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. 
Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. So my point that I'm making is, which attitude would we have had? Would we have tried to separate ourselves and not imagine that lady being there? Or we, would we have evoked a conversation with her, recognizing the fact that she is different, but there's a possibility that we may convert her, that we may change her way or change her life, just like the, some of the Christians in Corinth had changed their lives. So we just need to be careful about um, our perspective, our attitude. And I'm going to go ahead and say this, and I may have some eyebrows raised, but when we think about evangelism, we have got to think beyond knocking doors and asking them to come to church. That is not evangelism from the scriptural perspective. Every example of evangelism is where somebody goes out and teaches someone else. Think about David Neal's sermon from a couple of weeks ago about the purpose of the assembly. We want visitors, yes, so don't misunderstand me. We welcome visitors into the assembly. It is an opportunity to meet other people and to teach them. But when you think about what the primary purpose and purposes of the assembly, it is not to have whole mass of visitors come in to teach. It is for the purpose of the church. And so when we think about evangelism, it is not about knocking on doors, asking people, come to church. You never see that in scripture. It is always somebody going out and teaching someone the gospel. So I digress. But we have to remember that the power of the gospel is the word. Okay, And we will see exactly what Jesus does to convince and convict the Samaritan woman that she has a need. So how does he do that? Well, let's then go and look at the conversation that comes about in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and a well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank it of himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. And he said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, sir, 
I perceive that you are a prophet. So let's stop right there in verse 19. So, again, I want to emphasize this or reiterate this or maybe say it if I haven't already made it clear. The way that Jesus approaches this woman is a lesson for us. It is a blueprint for us on how we have conversation with people. Okay? And so think about the fact that he initiates the conversation and then he continues to work the conversation and then ultimately moves it over to have a spiritual application. Okay, so let's really dissect what's going on in this. And the concepts here can be used whether, whether it, you are doing a, you're having a conversation by yourself with someone or if, you're in, if, if you have somebody else with you. It, it doesn't have to be a one-on-one conversation. These are principles that, um, that I'm, I'm really trying to stress here. So let's think about verse 10. Jesus takes this idea of the water. The, the woman is you know, now in the process of getting the water out of the well. And Jesus you know, basically says, you know, you know if I, I could give you living water. I can give you this. Uh, if, if you really knew who I was, who was asking you for water, I could give you living, this living water that I've got. But notice that her mind is still focused on the physical. Jesus is slowly trying to get her to sort of navigate to the right or to the left, depending upon your perspective, okay? And so her mind is still thinking physical. And so in verse 11, right, you don't have anything to draw with. How can you give me this living water? Again, she's thinking physical. And then she's thinking well, this well that I'm going to get water for you is, is very good. Do you have a better well? Are you better than Jacob? Is your well better than the one he, he uh, dug? Again, notice the conversation. It is just, uh, 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 he's moving that conversation. She's focused on the physical, but fairly soon, he's going to get her to start thinking spiritual. So let's see how he... Uh, let's see how he does it some more. So notice in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. So he's using this physical water that she is getting for him and says, you know, I'm going to be thirsty again, you know, after I drink this. This going to come in, you know, I'm just human. I'm going to get thirsty it's not like I can drink one glass of water a day or a sip and I'm done. But Jesus says, but you know, I've got some water that if you drink it, you'll never thirst again. Okay, again, he's thinking spiritual. She's what? Thinking physical, right? But notice verse 15. There's about to be a need identified. And that need is, sir, give me some of this water. 
Notice this, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all this way. Ah, Jesus has now got her to admit that she has a need. She doesn't want to have to come all this way just to get water. She wishes she could never thirst again. Okay, now remember, did she think she was thirsty when she first came to the well? Obviously, she wanted water, but now get your mind to think spiritual. She didn't think she had a spiritual need, right? But now she's beginning to think slowly. Slowly she's getting there. So give me this water, man. Give me this water that I may not thirst again. I'm tired of having to come all this way just to get water. Okay, so her mind is still physical, but Jesus is making, making, is making progress. And I'm just going to stop right here and just say, you know, sometimes as we talk to people, we may not think we're making progress, but we may be. Okay? So just think about that. I'll just throw that out for you, your consideration. So important thing is she has a need. So now Jesus says, well, go tell your husband. And I have to love this because this is classic sales 101. Okay? And you're probably thinking, Carrie, you have lost your mind. Where I'm going with this is if you want to evoke a conversation with anyone, i.e. build rapport with someone that you don't know, you talk about three things. Family, occupation, recreation. Those are three key factors that will get anybody to talk. So what does he do? Well, go tell your husband about this. Now what happens? Now she reveals, well, I have no husband. That gives Jesus an opportunity then to say, well, you're, you're right. You've had five. Now, that's an attention grabber, isn't it? Now... Jesus has the attention of the Samaritan woman, does, does he not? Because he now has displayed the fact that uh, this guy's different. How did he possibly know that I've had five husbands and the man that I'm with right now is not a husband, is not number six? Okay? So it's all about the hook. It's all about bringing that person in and making them realize that you've got something that they need. Okay? And so here we see that this woman recognizes that Jesus is different, that he may have something she needs. Okay? So I go back to the earlier statement about evangelism. Evangelism is, is more than just knocking on door and asking people to come to church. That's like trying to sell a refrigerator to somebody who doesn't even know or think they need a cooler. You don't know the needs. You don't know where they are. You've got to build that relationship with the person before you can really start delving into their spiritual need. Jesus does this classic. Classic is just beautiful the way he does it. 
Paul does something very similar, and we won't take the time to look at it, but just cross-reference Acts 17 when he is uh, in Athens teaching the, the men another classic example of how to take a situation and then use it as an opportunity to teach the gospel. So now let's move on because time is getting away. So now notice verse 21. Uh, Let's start. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So, Jesus now, uh, when he talks about, uh, let's go back up to to 19. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So now, this is another classic situation. Just classic. Because now, the woman is focused on the difference. We worship in Mount Gerizim. You worship over in Jerusalem. You sort of know where I'm going? When you're talking to people, and they may ask, what what are you? And you say, I'm a Christian. Well, what kind? You sort of have this, you know, blank stare on. But then you, you know, you finally get to a question, you get into the conversation, and, and you say, well, where you attend worship, what group you're a part of, what do they immediately say? Oh, you're the group that doesn't use music, doesn't believe in music. Referring to the lack of instrumental accompaniment to vocal music. Okay. Or you're the only one who think you're going to heaven. Right? You've heard that before, right? People immediately go to the difference, right? So again, her reaction, classic. It is so typical of what people do. What does Jesus do? Jesus takes that and then carries and communicates a spiritual message that, hey, there's going to come a time when it's not going to matter where you worship. What's going to be important is that you worship... Well, let me back up. What's important is salvation is coming from the Jews. Okay, so think about, keep in mind the salvation. Number two, it's going to be important to worship in spirit, meaning with our heart, and in truth, based on God's word, because had the, were the Samaritans obedient to God's word? Mm-mm. No. So again, he takes that difference and then moves it into applying what is about to come. That then leads into a discussion of, from the woman, or a comment from the woman, to say, you know, speaking of coming, I, I know the Messiah, the Christ, is coming. And then what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I'm he. I am the Messiah. 
And that's the point that Jesus has been trying to, he, that's exactly the point where Jesus has been wanting to take her all along, is to get her to see, number one, she had a need, she does, and number two, he's the solution to her need. And so, she gets him to, to uh, real, he gets her to realize that. So, did I hit the wrong button? I guess I have. Um, yeah, I haven't been doing a very good job with that, gotten sort of sidetracked with what I'm saying. Um, oh, so this is where I am. Jesus teaches and provides the solution himself. And so I'll say this real quick because time is, is quickly getting by. And that is just like Jesus and what he did, his his focus, this, the focus of his message was getting her to recognize the need that she had and that he was the solution. Our message to people needs to be Christ-centered. You know, you can look out in the, the religious landscape and what do many people attempt to do to attract people to their message? Social programs. It is all about the social programs. What's in it, you know, what what are you going to do for me? Physically. So, but what we see time and time again, the gospel is centered on Christ. And again, I won't take the time, but I do want to focus on Romans 1, 16 and 17, Remember, the gospel is God's power to save. When you can think about what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, the fact that the gospel may be looked at by some as foolish, others that might just be a stumbling block to, you know, that's in their way. But our message and how we attract people is not through the social program to, to cure their physical need is far deeper it is to attract them to recognize that they recognize, let me rephrase it, they recognize they have a spiritual need. Jesus is the solution. We are evangelizing them to Christ. We are not evangelizing them to Northfield Boulevard. We are evangelizing people to recognize their need in Christ. Um, oh, and then the other one, the, the other bullet that I, I really wanted to hone in on is we need to let people come to their own conclusions. Look, you go back to the, the passage here in John 4. The woman made the connection herself. And the connection I'm thinking is the fact that she was the one who then made the connection about what Jesus said was coming. There's a time coming when it's not going to matter where we worship. She made the connection to the Messiah. She knew enough to say, to make that statement. I know that Messiah is coming and he will declare all things to us. So... She made that mental connection. People are not dumb. 
teach them what they need to know, they'll make the, the, the connections themselves. The more they make the, they conclude, they make their own conclusions, the, pow, the more powerful and concrete their faith will be. If we tell them, if we spoon feed them, it's not going to stick. Okay? So, I'll leave you with just a, a few other comments and suggestions. Number one, John 4, as I've said before, is this perfect case study in evangelism. Second, we need to be focusing on teaching Jesus. That's the essence of the message we need to have. And then third point is those who are evangelized, they spread the news. And I want you to see what does this woman do? (laughs) So his disciples come back in verse 27. The The woman leaves with her water pot, went into the city, and notice what he said. She says, In verse 29, come, see a man who told me all the things I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? And they went out of the city and were coming to him. And then I want to go into verse 39. And from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. So the initial belief, maybe the initial faith, the initial contact came from the woman. But the growth and the deepness of the subsequent people, the other Samaritans, was because they themselves recognized it. And I couldn't help but think about the passage in, uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians, what, that Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So, the, so we as Christians, yeah, we can evangelize, and then the people that we teach, what do they do? They go out and they teach. And I'm going to show my age because I haven't seen this commercial in probably 25 years. I might have been a kid. I don't remember. But there was a brilliant shampoo commercial many years ago, maybe back in the 80s. It was maybe Prell. It's like, okay, you know, shampoo, and it's going to be wonderful. I'm going to tell two people, and then they're going to tell two people, and then you go from a screen of one person, one headshot, to an entire TV screen of all these headshots to show about the, the advertisement that people will do for this wonderful shampoo. Okay? And that's really the essence of the gospel. Right? We tell someone, then they tell someone, then on and on and on it goes. And that's really the point that I want to sort of leave, with, leave you with here as we talk about how does Jesus communicate, how does he talk to people, that at, if we follow his example of building relationships and using those relationships as opportunities to teach others, and then they do the same, then... The result will be what we see in the first, uh, first, first century, 
in the New Testament. Okay, I guess that's it. I heard. I think I heard the second bell. Yeah, David. I think it hasn't rung yet, but it's pretty close. Oh, okay. I, I thought I heard it. Comment on this. Absolutely. Um, there are a lot of reasons, excuses, really, for why we don't evangelize the way we should. And one of those is we have a bad tendency to pre-qualify people, and you got into that a little bit at the beginning of the lesson. Even disqualify them based on perhaps ethnicity or race or the way they talk or maybe something we know about their lifestyle choices or whatever. But I've heard it said that they were called to be seed sowers, not soil testers. And, and so we have this bad habit. We want to get into testing the soil. And when we do that, as someone else once said, we're whittling on God's end of the stick. We just need to sow the seed and let him worry about the rest. Okay. Thank you. Okay. I guess I'll end there. Thank you.